I've always wanted to be Tom Sawyer at his own funeral, and now I've had it happen. Um, boy, wait till Allison and Nate and I become legislators of the world. Yeah, we're taking over. <laughs> yeah. I really want to thank Joanne Jacoby and Erica Hardcastle and Jen Sides for all the work they did to make this event happen. Thank Claire profusely for such a beautiful personal introduction. Uh, everybody at Tut Library who uh, has been so helpful to me over the years. And I want to do the, the traditional thing here at CC, which is traditional everywhere in Australia, and it's something I really value, and I think we're all just learning how to do it. Um, typically in Australia, a tribal elder will come and express a welcome to the country, uh, which is an interesting phenomenon. It's, a, it's charged with all kinds of irony, etc., cetera, uh, but it's a beautiful thing to see. I, I was saying to Natanya this morning, she can't be here now, she's elsewhere, um, that I really value this, this gesture CC is making, and I think it's something that America needs to learn to do nationally. Um, as Tocqueville said about Americans, we're forgetful about our history, we're forgetful about the past, we're constantly rebuilding, tearing down and rebuilding new stuff. Uh, so I do want to acknowledge that we are on the unceded territory, traditionally the territory of the Ute, uh, the Cheyenne, the Arapaho, uh, even also the Comanche and Apache people. Um, and I want to pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and future. Um, and if I had my druthers, an elder would be here saying those words for me or saying words of his or her own making for me. Um, when I, the moment um, Joanne invited me to give this lecture, I leapt to a title, which was, The Imagination is Free and So is This Lecture. <laughs> and then I thought, well, <laughs> oh my God, what would I say? Uh, and I found all kinds of crazy things to say, and I went through various versions of this lecture. Um, and my wife finally said to me, look, you're a storyteller, just talk about storytelling. And so, I, in a sense, that's what I'm going to do. Um, and right now it's being called at home in the imaginal. The imaginal is an interesting word. It seems to be derived from the philosopher and Islamist Henri Corbin. Uh, and you'll, you'll get from the text of the lecture that I've written here some sense of what I mean by the imaginal. If, if it comes close to what Corbin means, I don't know. But here we are, in a library, a treasury of human thoughts and imaginings, mappings, descriptions, blunders, desires. Every book, every article, map, or film in this library came from the minds of other human beings from all over the globe many different points in time. It's more than we will ever learn ourselves. We can reach into these books and other objects and find the lives of others and discover how little human beings have changed since the time of Homer. Yet also how various we are, how colorful in our skin tones and genders and languages and cultures. What a privilege it is to stand before you in this library, 
and talk about a few things I love, as I love the freedom of the imagination, as I love books, and sometimes even the people who made them. What unites most of the books in this library is a very human activity, storytelling. And look at all the ways in which one can tell a story, from a poem to a mathematical theorem, to a narrative of rocks and snow, to a map. Story comes from everywhere. And all of these things are feeding the imagination, constantly feeding the very quality that makes us human and helps us find connections in life. We are here to grow our capacity to tell stories. This capacity, which you can tend like a gardener, is what I call the imagination. And without it, our lives would be much diminished, even impossible. Imagination is sometimes associated with untruth, but imagination is true, at least as true as memory. As Thomas Hobbes reminds us in Leviathan, or Tim O'Brien dramatizes in How to Tell a True War Story. Anytime we try to tell a story, we learn again the reality, the inevitability of the imaginal. I'm thinking about story and connection, stories that make connections. Once, some 20 years ago in Greece, I had an encounter that could have happened in Homer. I was strolling through a village, Castagna, high in the Taigatos Mountains of the southern Peloponnese. It was spring, the village fountains overflowing with snowmelt, the water gushing down the streets and paths, so walking on stones felt like wading in a stream. The world was flowing. Greek mountain villages are wealthy in water, their cisterns keeping it cool even in the hottest summer months. And to see so much of it flowing freely, profligately away, somehow lightened the spirit. The village was alive with water. I was looking for a church whose frescoes were reported to be very fine, and only when I stood on the hillside across, from the, across the village from it could I make out the little bell tower above the tiled rooftops. High up in the mountains, the rocks form a kind of theater. You can hear the voices of villagers chattering from house to house, the goat bells climbing the mountainside, the monosyllabic shouts of the goat herds prodding their flocks. Crossing the village, suddenly I lost sight of the church's bell tower. My angle of vision had changed and I could no longer see so clearly. I paced in a lane below the place where I thought it should stand, looking up at the houses, trying to remember where the bell tower had risen. And that was when an old man came toward me up the lane. His silver hair and mustache were neatly trimmed and he wore clean Western clothes, perhaps having come from some business in one of the villages down by the sea. I greeted him in the customary way and he returned my greeting. Then he asked, Pupas. It was a common question to ask a stranger, where are you going? He asked it as much with a turn of a wrist as with his voice, Pupas. I explained what I was looking for, the old church with the frescoes. In a piso, he said. It's behind. He pointed to a wall with a gate. Ella, come. His name was Nikos. He was in his 70s, but nimble as one of his goats. I followed him through that latched gate into another world. These were Nikos's goat pens, 
Situated between his house and the village lane, they were crudely built with spaces between the boards emitting sunlight on the straw where a dozen suckling kids scampered about. We walked bent over under the rusty metal roof, our eyes adjusting to the dark, then emerged into sunlight in a yard of packed dirt and grass tufts under a plane tree. I felt as if I had walked through a tunnel back in time. There stood Nikos's wife, Fotini, dressed in her workaday rags and headscarf. She had been feeding the chickens from a bowl of scraps in her red hands. Nikos introduced us. He directed me to take a seat on a stump in the yard while Fotini went to get food for the stranger. Are you married? Nikos asked me. Yes, I said. Do you have children? I have a daughter, stepdaughter. It was complicated, but I kept my story simple. Nikos sat near me on a block of wood. He touched my arm. Well, he said, did you steal your wife or did she steal you? <laughs> she stole my heart, I said. Fotini had been making mazithra, the mild white cheese, and she emerged from the house with a bowl of warm yogurty stuff and some bread rusks, an elemental meal for the stranger, who in Greek culture is also a guest. I stole her, Nikos said of his wife. From her father? Yes, he cackled, slapping his knee, while Fotini stood by, blushing, looking pleased with his story. They had relatives in America, Chicago, but had never been. We sat under fresh goatskins hung to dry from a branch of a plane tree. Nikos opened a spigot under the tree and filled three glasses with the freshest water I have ever tasted. This was how they greeted me, with conversation and food. They could be Baucis and Philemon, I thought. The story from the Roman poet Ovid of the pious couple who care for two strangers, not knowing the strangers are gods in disguise. Or this could be a scene in Homer, this simple act of kindness and curiosity, Odysseus welcomed by the Phaeacians. This is the culture of philoxenia, so common in the Eastern Mediterranean. One treats the stranger well, enlarging one's own spirit in doing so. We sat in the yard for perhaps an hour, talking of our lives. Nikos was the oldest of 12 brothers. Of his own four children, only one remained in the village, now tending the goats on the mountainside for the summer months. They would join the sun, camping in the high country when the suckling goats were stronger, sleeping under the stars with their flock. The young are leaving us, Nikos said. Once there were 2,000 people in the village, now only 150. But, said Fortini, they had ten grandchildren, which was a good thing. Tell your wife she must give you a son, Nikos said. <laughs> I let it pass. It was not my place, I felt at the time, to disagree or explain my complicated life. There was no time to argue about overpopulation, global warming, or any of the other concerns that weigh upon us now. This was a gentle meeting of two, three very different people in a spirit of kindness and curiosity. In the same spirit, I invite you not to worry whether or not this story is true. It's a memory 
which means it is partly or wholly composed of imagination, images. Nikos opened the church for me, let me gaze on the frescoes, faded and moldy with time, darkened by candle smoke. I was curious about them as art, curious about the masterful iconography of devils and monsters, the local stories from another time. But there was also a gulf between this old agrarian and me, as if we inhabited different planets and were only catching glimpses of each other. Or if he and Fortuny were, if I were to imagine Nikos as a character in a novel, or if he or Fortuny were inclined to imagine me, we might go much further. But not as ourselves. We would be imaginal beings, translated, given new coherence that we may not possess in literal biography. The character Nikos and the man Nikos would never be the same thing whether I'm writing fiction or nonfiction. Living in story always means that we are living in more than one way. Many horrible things have been done in the name of religion in villages like Castagna, and many beautiful things as well, such as the kindness shown to a stranger. The village was said to have supported the fascists in the Greek Civil War after the Nazi occupation. Maybe so. Was Nikos a fascist? Was his father a fascist? As his guest, I was not about to ask. And for the time being, it didn't matter. I had evidence of his old-fashioned belief in, in patriarchy, but really knew nothing about his politics. Yet despite our differences, we had met. We had enjoyed each other's company for a little while. I had tasted water, fried bread, and new cheese from the milk of this kindly couple's goats. Their spirit of civility relates to what I mean by imagination, a realm in which we can see one another, we can see another, without feeling that the other has to be changed right here, right now, into a more perfect person. It's a willingness to hear another person's story without having to correct it or elevate oneself above it in moral superiority. This is something like the way we read a character in a novel. We know the character is invented, yet we entertain the reality of that person almost as we would a figure in real life. We judge, but we also suspend judgment in our effort to understand, to see the life of another. I don't read books in order to validate myself but to expand the boundaries of my experience. And I write for the same reason, whether from my own or from other points of view. I want more life, and I want to hold it more beautifully up to the light before it vanishes. To see the humanity of a man like Nikos or a woman like Fortigny without knowing a thing about their politics or how rigidly old-fashioned they may be is not to make unexpected is, is may, excuse me, may or may not be, is to make unexpected connections, to learn about compassion as well as judgment, to widen one's circle of life. The moment lives both in and out of time as a story. The poet Seamus Heaney once wrote, the end of art is peace. I thought of the line in Castagna, 
on that peaceful spring day in the mountains of melting snow, stories teach us that we are all caught in the same tragedy. We all die searching for meaning, hearing secret harmonies or hoping to hear them. That is why philoxenia, the kindness to strangers, matters so much and why the free imagination keeps us from being quite the monsters we might otherwise be. Mention of an Irish poet like Heaney calls to mind another story of hospitality. This happened to me many years ago in Belfast, Northern Ireland. It was 1975, before many people in this room were born, the height of the Troubles. I was a 20-year-old hitchhiker living on money I'd made unloading fishing boats in Alaska. My mother country was Scotland, my mother tongue, English and my travels on foot through the aisles were a magic immersion in language, a confirmation of vocation and love. Someone gave me the name of an American living in Belfast and said if I went to the city, the American could put me up for the night. So I took the train from Dublin and gave the American's address to a cabbie in Belfast and was taken through the streets to a hillside neighborhood. The cab departed and I walked the steps up the steps of a row house across from a park. The neighborhood, I later learned, was Protestant, with tidy brick houses and trim little yards in the spring sunlight. And after some time ringing the bell of the American's house and getting no answer, I crossed to the park, where children played and a few old pensioners sat on benches. Watching the old men in their silences and their stories Perhaps I remembered lines by my favorite Irish poet, William Butler Yeats. This is from an early poem of his called Lamentation of the Old Pensioner. Though lads are making pikes again for some conspiracy, and crazy rascals rage their fill at human tyranny, my contemplations are of time. It has transfigured me. Yeats was in his 20s when he imagined that wild old man. And I was in my teens when I first read him. I was the sort of boy who always connected life and art, mixing them up, feeling the way art lives in time and out of it, just like the human mind and imagination. That day in Belfast, I learned a few more things. I learned a British Army stockade hunkered just up the street between a Protestant neighborhood and a Catholic area higher on the hillside. The stockade was prickly with barbed wire and automatic rifles, and every now and then it released a squad on patrol, guns pointing fore and aft as they walked the streets. I had naively wandered into a war zone. No one could tell me where the American had gone. He apparently worked for a church organization trying to get Protestant and Catholic kids to meet each other and overcome their ancient tribal animosities. I could feel, talking to the children in the park and to some of the old pensioners in their dark suits, a certain goodwill edged with a certain tension, a wariness about this American boy standing lost among them, knapsack on his back. I spent the whole day in that park, except when I excused myself to wander uphill and look at the Catholic houses, which were smaller dimmer, more shuttered and silent. They were in unspoken bitterness. I remember one small corner shop with very few goods on the shelves. How nervous I felt 
when the soldiers emerged from their prickly stockade and I returned to the serene enclosure of the park. A small boy and girl wanted me to play with them and we ran about a green hillside, the two of them chattering like birds. A great house flying a flag could be seen in the distance and the little girl called it God's Castle. They lived in their own empire of imagination. Even in that troubled space, Later that afternoon, I met the father of these two children. He was home from work, collecting them for tea. A thin young man with a kindly face, like all the others, very curious to meet this young American hitchhiker. It was he who told me, while his children tugged at his hands for attention, that the other American, the one I'd come to Belfast to meet, was away on the continent at one of his church camps and would not be back for days. Now, the old pensioners and the park keeper in his blue uniform and cap decided they must help me out. One of them gave me sandwiches he had brought for his day in the park, buttered white bread and ham. They would be closing the gate at nightfall. They were worried for my safety. The white-haired keeper had an office, a sort of garden shed with a concrete floor, a stove, table, and chair, and he said I could sleep there for the night. He would lock me in for my own safety. Night was a dangerous time and another keeper would spring me loose in the morning. Meanwhile, there was a little fire in the stove and a tea kettle, and I had the sandwiches. I had a foam pad and sleeping bag in my knapsack, and a few changes of clothes and some books. I was also rather stupidly carrying a portable typewriter, having decided I was a writer. Some people in the room won't know what that is, but I'll explain it if we have time for questions. I spent that night alone, Locked in the park keeper's hut with a cup of tea and sandwiches for my evening meal. There was a kerosene lamp I could stand on the floor by my sleeping bag, so I propped my head on my knapsack pillow and read. The book I was reading, in a penguin paperback, was Ernest Hemingway's For Whom the Bell Tolls about the Spanish Civil War in Spain, probably because I took a class on the Spanish Civil War from Susan Ashley. There's nothing like immersion in a novel, particularly when you're young. On ships in Alaska, I had read Moby Dick and War and Peace. On the road in Britain, Ireland, and the continent, I would read Malcolm Lowry's Under the Volcano, Joyce's Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, assorted more books by Hemingway, Oscar Wilde, Chekhov. In one glorious week in Spain, I would finish Anna Karenina. I climbed up to the roof of my pension, hearing symphonies in my head as the sun rose over Almeria and the Costa Blanca. It was amazing. I'm not sure it matters what books I was reading. What matters is the degree to which I was able to grow my imaginative capacities to feel deeply the importance of language and story and the connection of these things to the world in which I walked. That night in Belfast, I would later learn, there was a murder, an execution really, but I knew nothing of it and read on, a bit nervous in the park keeper's hut, but eventually able to sleep on the concrete floor. Due to the kindness of some old men who knew nothing about me, I was safe. In the morning, a key turned in the lock, the door swung open, and a new keeper appeared with an apple for my breakfast. The old men were gathering for a morning in the park. One had news of the killing in the night. I decided I'd better leave thanked all the people who had cared for me and shouldered my pack. Downhill from the park, I found a cab being shared by four others. Cabs often took more than one fare. 
practical adjustment in an occupied city. We were heading down to the city's heart when a British Army roadblock pulled us over to inspect our luggage for bombs. The young soldier who examined my passport kept his rifle pointed at my hiking boots. I did not understand the words he barked at me, but the cabbie took my arm and guided me back inside the car, and we were off. You're an American. I told him I was and gave him the name of the other American I'd wanted to meet. I know him, the cabbie said. I'll take you to another fellow knows him. Thus began another strange day in Belfast. And as I write, I find myself scrambling to remember details. The cab driver's face, which I would have seen only in glimpses given my shyness and my case of nerves. The faces of the other passengers in the car. The number of soldiers at the roadblock. The names of streets as we entered the city center. I was lost, completely in the hands of others. And damned lucky, they, others had no malevolent designs. Neighborhoods went by in the window, some with deserted streets, some thronged with traffic. Passengers were unloaded until I was the last remaining. Finally, we stopped near a half-empty street of small, cheerless row houses. Here's your man. I hefted my knapsack and typewriter and stood behind the cabbie as he rapped on the door of a narrow house. The door teetered off its hinges and fell inward against the entry wall. Jesus, we peered inside a bare parlor where a man lay on the floor in a sleeping bag. He was just sitting up, rubbing his eyes at the light. The fuck happened to your door? <laughs> the man on the floor was young, rumpled, hungover. He squinted at us and explained that paratroopers had butted down the door in a house-to-house -house search, and he hadn't bothered to fix the hinges. They'll just knock it down again. The cabbie introduced me as an American looking for an American, and I might need looking after. Before I knew it, he was gone, and I was helping the hungover young man place the door back on its hinges. The terrible thing is that after 45 years, I have forgotten his name. I remember the smell of beer and cigarettes in his little parlor, but not why he was sleeping on the floor instead of a room upstairs. I remember he had to pull on his trousers and button his shirt, and how immediately he set about trying to make me feel at home. Let's call him Sean. I would guess Sean was older than me by a few years. He was scrawny with short, dark hair. I knew nothing about the neighborhood where I'd been dropped, nothing about its religious or economic makeup, only that Sean worked for the same church organization as my missing American. He earned about 20 pounds a week, enough to keep him fed and smoking. Sean explained to me how the church invited children from both tribes, Protestant and Catholic, to camps on the continent where they would meet and play and get to know each other. My American was there now and would be gone a few more days. This is what I want to tell you about Sean, with whom that day I watched hours of an incomprehensible critic cricket match on a snowy black and white TV. I went with him on his cigarette run to a shop across the street, and our, on our return I shared a meal with him. He was very poor, but didn't seem to care. In the back of his little parlor was a kitchen with an old cast iron stove and a gas ring for cooking. The stove no longer worked, so it had become his larder. When he opened the door, I saw his food supply, a bowl of eggs, 
a loaf of bread, and a fold of butcher's paper containing a few strips of bacon. Sean cooked us a meal on the gas ring, eggs and bread with slabs of butter, and he gave me the bacon. I tried to share it with him, but he insisted. We ate our meal in silence before the snowy cricket match, a kind of benediction at the altar of the game. A man who had nothing gave me everything he had. I felt ashamed of my uselessness, my inability to understand even the game on the TV or the accents of the commentators. There were other adventures in Belfast, some more menacing, but I tell you this part of it now because of the way I was treated by strangers, the way I was watched and worried over, taken in, taken care of, fed. This care for the stranger enacted in real life seems to me related to stories, our care for the strangers in books. We have to give them something, our time and patience and curiosity in order to receive their gifts of connection, drama, and insight. We have to make ourselves at home in stories, which means being at home in uncertainty, suspense, awkwardness, strangeness. Stories remind us that we're not always right, and we can't know everything about other human beings. We can't change their natures, yet we must determine how we feel about them all the same. Stories are life. Human beings imagine horrors as much as beauties and connections. We always have and we always will. It's our nature. It is, you might say, the only home we have, this turmoil we call a life. This is why I'm impatient with critics who tell writers and artists what they cannot do, how they must curtail imagination, stay in their lane, conform to the dictates of others, whether on social media or in the magazines, Telling artists what they can't do is a waste of breath. Some artist will eventually break your rule and prove you wrong. We can quibble all we want about specific works of art or literature. What we cannot do is tell them a priori they shouldn't exist, or tell artists and writers they shouldn't try. Strictures against cultural appropriation are a case in point. You know, some's good, some's bad. You've got to be able to argue about the specific example. We shouldn't generalize and condemn something that the arts have always done before we look at the specific example at hand, much as you would encounter another person and see what sort of a thing or person you've got. Imagining another person is actually not stealing anyone's experience, for the most part, but creating a new and imaginal one. The audacity of James Baldwin whose narrator in Giovanni's room is a gay white male, or Virginia Woolf, who gives us the mad Septimus Smith, as well as a straightened Mrs. Dalloway, or Emily Dickinson, who imagines hearing at the moment of death not a choir of angels but a stumbling fly, or Aeschylus, who dared to imagine the Persian point of view, or Audrey Lorde, who appropriated Yoruba religion for her image of motherhood in her poem from the House of Yemenja or James Joyce, who imagined the mind of a very particular woman, a woman who only exists in the pages of Ulysses and nowhere else on earth, 
These things appear to be an affront to some contemporary readers, but I think those readers are looking for justice in the wrong place, forgetting that imaginal experience is usually an enlargement, an addition to our store of images, and really doesn't diminish anyone. The novelist Zadie Smith, by the way, published a defense of fiction against puritanical readings in the New York Review of Books last October. I really recommend it to you. The end of art is peace. But what trouble and turmoil it can give us along the way. To be a reader is to invite that turmoil and uncertainty even as you search for beauty and connection. The greatest Irish poet, Yeats, is great in part because of the sheer range of human feelings his work expresses, the audacity of his foolishness as well as his wisdom, the muscularity and memorability of his technique. I love Yeats as an example even when I strongly disagree with him and think being able to reside with an artist in such complicated terms is a good thing, the sort of love-hate one might experience in one's own family or community closer to real life than some purity of consensus might be. His willingness to express ugly emotions, wild ideas, the full reach of his imagination is a kind of daring almost unheard of today. Yeats wasn't worried about Twitter or Facebook telling him he couldn't try, and he wouldn't have given a damn anyway. He wasn't an unfettered artist, but he chose his own fetters, and that's the only way a real artist can behave. We can find Yeats being foolish in some of his statements about women, for example, and then we can see his dynamic effort to really see and honor women very different from himself in No Second Troy and Adam's Curse. We can see him denouncing Irish mediocrity and fecklessness in September 1913, Romantic Ireland's dead and gone, it's with O'Leary in the grave, and then within a few years he admits his mistake wrestling with the politics he had thought so destructive in what is arguably the greatest political poem ever written, Easter 1916. Political poetry often suffers from an oversimplification of experience. This is a great political poem in my view because it remains uncertain of its truth or even of the realm in which a political statement can be true. It wrestles with its being, its physics and metaphysics, as much as what it's saying. Now, it's hard to say where the Irish troubles began, with the Normans, the Vikings, the Elizabethans, Cromwell or William of Orange. They came to a head in the 19th century on three fronts. There was the legal political process of trying for home rule and property rights, led by the charismatic Charles Stuart Parnell. There were the various terrorist brotherhoods that would eventually form organizations like the IRA. And there was the cultural movement to reanimate Irish identity, led by figures such as Yeats, Lady Gregory, and Jonathan Millington Singh. The Home Rule movement was defeated not by the British, as you might expect, but by Irish conservatives, puritanical Catholics who brought down Parnell because he was an adulterer. The martyrdom of Parnell is a major element in the fiction of Joyce and the poetry of Yeats. The fecklessness and ineptitude of Irish nationalists, all talk and no gravy, seemed impervious to change. But it did change. And that is the point of Yeats's poem, which is on the handout you have. It changed horribly. 
Home Rule passed in the British Parliament, but was tabled at the outbreak of World War I. Irish Republicans chose violence as a means to liberation, some of them landing guns in Germany, which was eager to open a second front against the British. Ireland is a small country, Yeats knew many of the men and women organizing for a fight. One of them, Major John McBride, married the woman Yeats had loved since his 20s, Maud Gunn, who was herself a powerful rabble-rouser willing to suffer for the cause. Units of the Republican Army attacked in Dublin during Easter week, 1916. They expected their rebellion to catch fire in the rest of the country, but it did not. Augustine Birrell, Chief Secretary for Ireland, a literary man whose friends included J.M. Barry, author of Peter Pan, reluctantly approved a strong military response. A week of furious battle ended with a siege in the general post office on Sackville Street. The city was gutted by artillery, and the last rebels finally surrendered. Friends of Yates, including Constance Gore Booth, were imprisoned while the 16 leaders of the rebellion, John McBride among them, were executed by firing squad in the yard of Kilmainham Jail. It was the start of something. It would lead to the Black and Tans War, the Treaty and Civil War, the Irish Free State, and a divided island, eventually the Republic, and the border with Ulster that's been such a headache for today's Brexiteers. The men and women who staged the rebellion were far from ordinary, but the fervor and fanaticism necessary to commit violence of that sort had hardened their purpose. Yeats begins the poem with his own incredulity. Quote, I have met them at close of day, coming with vivid faces from counter or desk among gray 18th century houses. I have passed with a nod of the head or polite, meaningless words, or have lingered a while and said polite, meaningless words, and thought before I had done of a mocking tale or a jive to please a companion around the fire at the club, being certain that they and I but lived where motley is worn. All changed, changed utterly. A terrible beauty is born. Now in his 50s, Yeats has perfected a supple technique capable of moving from a bland complacency to extraordinary heights. Here we have his own self-mocking mockery of others, their clownish motley, his jokes at the club, and we arrive at the essence of lyric, the oxymoron, in which two words embody irreducible stresses and oppositions, a terrible beauty, now the most famous oxymoron in English. In the second stanza, he talks of these friends and acquaintances in particular, including Constance Gorbuth, Padraig Peirce, Thomas McDonough, and John McBride. Quote, That woman's days were spent in ignorant goodwill, her nights in argument until her voice grew shrill. What voice more sweet than hers when young and beautiful she rode to harriers? This man had kept a school and rode our winged horse. This other, his helper and friend, was coming into his force. He might have won fame in the end, so sensitive his nature seemed, so daring and sweet his thought. This other man I had dreamed a drunken, vainglorious lout. He had done most bitter wrong to some who were near my heart. 
Yet I number him in the song. He, too, has resigned his part in the casual comedy. He, too, has been changed in his turn, transformed utterly. A terrible beauty is born. This is the point at which Yeats sees the rebels as individuals, not as symbols or objects of contempt or casual humor. He has not yet named James Connolly, the labor leader who was so badly wounded in battle that he had to be strapped to a chair in order to be executed by firing squad. The verse so far is simply articulate, mixing four and three beat lines, full rhymes with slant surprises like comedy and utterly. A stanza break for Yeats is an opportunity for a change of direction, and he now takes the most surprising turn in the poem. From a tight focus on the particular rebels, he steps back, seeing the whole scene from a distance, as if all human endeavor were no different than the movement of water and the hungers of animals in the wild. The living does not stop with the deaths of particular people. Notice how his focus changes, his attention and alertness becoming almost cinematic. In this stanza, it's almost like montage in a movie. Very easy to film this. Hearts with one purpose alone, through summer and winter seem enchanted to a stone to trouble the living stream. The horse that comes from the road, the rider, the birds that range from cloud to tumbling cloud, minute by minute, they change. A shadow of cloud on the stream changes minute by minute. A horse hoof slides on the brim and the horse plashes within it. The long-legged moorhens dive and hens to moorcocks call minute by minute. They live, the stones in the midst of it all. And then he's going to say, in that next transition, too long a sacrifice can make a stone of the heart. Right? What is changing? And what is unchanging? What is fanaticism? What is the hate that would make people kill each other for some notion of justice. Who is a terrorist? And who is a hero in such a context? Yeats would later write, Homer is my example, and his unchristened heart. He understood a Greek vision of human tragedy and also understood that violence, like the sex drive, will not simply be wished away, any more than hurricanes and bushfires can be wished away. To seek civility in that context might be the most powerful thing of all because it acknowledges the immensity of nature, the wildness of who we are, our animal nature, even toward that realm that we associate with religion. He asks us to hold this complexity and contradiction in one moment, one oxymoron. What is the beauty? What is the terror of this political and more than political moment? And what is the poet to do in the face of such stunning action? Notice how he catches himself in the act of symbolizing. He stops his line of thinking, this is toward the end now, and refuses to let it all be turned into an abstraction. Too long a sacrifice can make a stone of the heart. Oh, when will it suffice? 
That is heaven's part. Our part to murmur name upon name as a mother names her child when sleep at last has come on limbs that had run wild. What is it but nightfall? No. No. Not night. But death. Was it needless death after all? For England may keep faith for all that is done and said. We know their dream. Enough to know they dreamed and are dead. And what if excess of love bewildered them till they died? I write it out in a verse. McDonough and McBride and Connolly and Purse, now and in time to be, wherever green is worn, are changed. Changed utterly. A terrible beauty is born. The green is Ireland, of course, but also a nature that seems certain to outlive all human memory. Yeats has looked at particular people taking an action with which he disagreed, and he has changed his mind about them. He has created a poem that maps the action of his mind, suggesting even a world mind, a flowing and changing nature of which we are only a part. You can find what the critic Hazard Adams called the book of Yeats's poems here in this library, along with maps where I once tried to locate the Belfast Park in which I spent the night. Maps where you can also find Castagna, high in the Greek mountains, in the map room, there's even a globe naming all the metaphorical seas of the moon. You can find magazines and journals where new-minted poems appear, novels, memoirs, history. Yeats's voice is one in a million, one in more than a million, to trouble this living stream. What you must cherish if you come here is the difficult thing, the effort to tell stories and to listen to them. And I thank you for listening to my stories today. <laughs>